You're about to listen to an Audible original. Immersive audio entertainment like you've never heard before. Discover comedies from some of your favorite stars. Plus more genres you love. All inside the Audible app. But for now, enjoy the ride. The following contains language that some may find offensive. Dolomite is my name and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. He was the dirtiest of the dirty. Bitch, I'll jump up in your pussy like it's a storm. But I'm that notorious hustler called Pippin Sam. He would tell these jokes and it would just be vulgar and he would be rhyming and shit. You know what I'm saying? I was like, who is this? Creator of an iconic character that lives on to this day. Dolomite stays alive because there's nothing else like him. He went from cult comic to hit filmmaker to self-described godfather of rap. He was the Jay-Z. He was the Madonna. He was the Beyonce. He was the Rolling Stones in Black America. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the entertainer who played by his own rules. I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to own myself. That was Rudy Ray Moore. With an ego as big as his dreams. Rudy had this weird insistence that it was his God-given right to become famous. And was never afraid to bet on himself. He was a true hustler. He wanted desperately to be an entertainer, and he sort of did absolutely anything possible to be in that position. He was just going to keep doing whack-a-mole and keep trying every possibility until he hit one that worked. Over a 60-year career, he found ways to offend just about everyone and still kept them coming back for more. Everybody knows that my name is Rudy. And I'm always looking for me some good hot food. Rudy Ray Moore, to me, is like one of the most determined, not take no for an answer, make his own lane, under, under, underground comedians that there ever were. I'm J.B. Smooth, and this is Funny My Way, Rudy Ray Moore. Rudy Ray Moore was sort of a self-made man. He kind of came from, from nothing, and everything he got out of life was because he sort of forced it out of life. That life begins on March 17th, 1927 when Rudolph Frank Moore is born in Fort Smith, Arkansas. He's the oldest of seven children in a strict church-going household. They were raised in the church, Baptist, and his parents was very strict. But life at home is hard. After years of suffering at the hands of an abusive stepfather, Rudy runs away and heads for Cleveland, Ohio. He's only 15 years old, with no idea how he's going to take care of himself. Rudy Ray Moore biographer, Mark Jason Murray. When he left Arkansas, he went with a couple friends. He had some friends that were children of someone who kind of took him in. When we would look at these photos of the family that Rudy came from, I mean, this was as hopeless as it could get. Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski co-wrote the screenplay for the 2019 film Dolomite Is My Name. This is Scott. This was just, you are trapped barefoot on this little farm in this little town, and this is where you're going to spend your life. And, and, so, and so, you know, life promised them so little, and it, it was so important to him just to, to get the hell out of there and not have his life be forgotten. And here's Larry. I think he was told he was no good. And so he got this thing where he felt like, no, I am worth something. I do matter. And, and I'm going to show the world that I exist. In Cleveland, every day is a struggle. Rudy feels ignored, invisible. One night he checks out a local talent contest and something inside him clicks. When you're on stage, whether the crowd loves you or hates you, they cannot deny you exist. Rudy kind of got his start in Cleveland because he 
entered a talent show. This is in his mid-teens, and he's he's working, you know, peeling potatoes and working as a waiter and doing dishes, just just menial labor, gathering his street smarts. And when he entered a talent contest, I think he started to realize, you know, hey, I can make some money doing this. And that's when he joined Neil Steps Review, which was a traveling show. That's also where Rudy starts performing as a jump blues singer. Journalist Kurt Hernan. Jump blues is like basically the earliest form of rock and roll. It was black performers who were taking blues and speeding it up and giving it a, a hopping beat. At 17, Rudy heads to Milwaukee and lands a job as a dancer at a nightclub. To stand out, he dons a turban and creates the stage persona, Prince Dumas. He finds that becoming someone else gives him something he craves. Freedom. Rudy's manager for 35 years, Donald Randell. He will put on these turbans and this makeup, and people will come backstage where he was. He would tell his fortune. He said he was just this fake psychic that he said he was just having fun. That, you know, people took him serious. I don't know where Rudy got his ideas for, for all the various characters he played over time. It was definitely, you know, putting on various masks. Maybe he wasn't comfortable in his own skin, so he's always creating other personas. Ladies and gentlemen, if you all elect me for president, I will not promise you a goddamn thing. When the Korean War begins in 1950, Rudy joins the Army. He's in for almost three years with assignments in Kentucky, Korea, and Germany. Going into the Army was his way of escaping home. Like other future comics of his era, Rudy hones his skills performing in front of his fellow troops and earns the nickname the Harlem Hillbilly for his R&B renditions of popular country songs. It's not long before comedy starts sneaking into his act. Here he is in his own words, read by an actor. I would be on stage, and an act would be taking too much time to get ready. So the audience would say, come on, do something, tell a joke or something. I'd seen this woman back in Cleveland, and I'd seen her act because I had worked with her so many times. Stella Caledonia Young, who was a bit of a legend, a comic, uh, one of those body-loud review-type comics. And, and he started doing her stuff because he heard it so many times that he would use it on the stage in these Army shows. So I just started doing her stuff. It went over so well that I just kept doing it. It's history. Here comes my baby. He may be finding his comedy groove, but Rudy keeps his focus on his first love, music. When he gets out of the military, he moves to Seattle and records a few songs for Federal Records, a label known for R&B acts like The Famous Flames, featuring a young James Brown. The Dolomite Is My Name screenwriters say Rudy's shifting between comedy and singing wasn't an intentional career strategy. Rudy sort of drifted in and out with the recordings. He's always just sort of just trying to reinvent himself, just seeing if he can move any product. His biggest song under Federal is Step It Up and Go, released in 1956. Listen, everybody'd like to do for you song that's lively and real brand new. You heard them fast, you heard them slow. The name of this tune is Step It Up and Go. You got to step it up and go. Again, journalist Kurt Hernan. He was a jump blues singer. I mean, he started doing a bunch of sort of rock and roll pioneer kind of stuff. But what he found was at that time, rock and roll was, you know, it, it was being written and devised by African-Americans, but it was being made popular by, by white Americans. His music, people responded to it, critics liked it, but it was staying in the background of people like Pat Boone and Bill Haley and the Comets. So he saw his singing career sort of start to slide, that there really wasn't a future for it. His music career isn't working out, but Rudy refuses to give up. At the age of 32, he moves to the entertainment capital of the world, Los Angeles, California. He gets a job at Dolphins of Hollywood Record Store where he finds a mentor and store owner, John Dolphin. John Dolphin was a total entrepreneur in that he was running the record store. He had a radio station in the store, and he was 
expressing albums and then releasing albums. And he was also, you know, signing acts. And so by working for John Dolphin, Rudy learned the physical mechanics of where do you go to get vinyl pressed? Where do you buy the labels? So Rudy actually knew the physicality of how do you put an LP together. Rudy absorbs all the knowledge he can about the music industry. And when he can't find a label willing to put out his songs, he creates his own. Vermont Records, named after the street he lives on in L.A. Not only was he learning the inside of the recording industry in terms of getting a product made by working at Dolphins, he was learning the distribution side as well as how to get them into the stores. He was putting all of his money into recording. And while Rudy is furiously recording, he adds comedy to the mix. In 1961, he releases Below the Belt with Do Two Records, a label touted as L.A.'s Motown. The one and only king of comedy, Rudy Ray Moore. Hey! First, I would like to say good evening, ladies, and what you brought with you. Yes, indeedy. I'm going to ask all the ladies on the ring side to cross your legs. Very quick, hurry up, darling. Cross your legs. Ah, la, 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 la. Well, I guess I can keep on now that the gates of hell is closed. Rudy's act is shocking. Few comics of the era were willing to be so raw if they hoped to hit the mainstream. Dwight Jordan, a programming director at the Apollo Theater, grew up in his mother's record shop in Mississippi that sold Moore's vinyl. They were considered blue records. A blue record is a record that you don't have on the shelf at a record store. It's one of those, let's just call it a dirty record. So dirty that you have to keep behind the shelf. Very much like brown paper bag liquor that you keep behind, like moonshine. You just don't share it with the public. It's secret. Teachers at Julius, today I want you to spell the states. Ohio is the first one I want you to spell. Julius run to the blackboard and he spelled it well. Teachers at Julius, I want you to spell Mississippi. Julius went to the blackboard and started spelling out loud. You know how he talked, he couldn't help how he talked. He said, teacher, this is the way it goes. He said, M-I come a first, and then a I come. Then a S I come a twice, and then I come again. S I come a twice more, and I pee pee, and I come again. <laughs> Mississippi. <laughs> Rudy keeps the blue records coming. He follows up below the belt with the beatnik scene, and then the album A Comedian is Born, which he records on another label he creates, Comedians, Inc. None of the albums do well. Towards the end of the 60s, Rudy had kind of given up on his career to a degree. He hadn't had any vocal recordings in several years or any comedy. His career was really stagnant. He was managing Dolphins of Hollywood, and there was a record that came through there by a man named Jimmy Lynch, who would become one of Rudy's closest friends. Jimmy had an album, Funky Tramp in a Nightclub. What did you call me? Tramp! And there's a joke, a long monologue that Jimmy has about a man who's having sex with a gorilla. And the punchline is, take the muzzle off the motherfucker so I can kiss it. Of course, that was, at the time, was outrageous. No one was saying anything like that. And so Rudy saw how well this album was selling, and he met with Jimmy and asked him, how did you get this recorded? Did you have any, any issues with the language? And Jimmy was, you know, no, everything. I didn't have any trouble with it. Rudy finally understands the reason his records aren't selling. It isn't because they're too offensive. They're not offensive enough. Rudy just kind of said, you know what, then I'm going to do it. You did it one time, I'm going to do it a thousand times. And I'm going to see what happens. And he gathered up a couple bucks that he had, borrowed some money from an aunt, 
and recorded it in his apartment. He brought in a technician. To his credit, they, they knew what they were doing. They would point to their friends and this is where you're supposed to really laugh your ass off. And they mixed it all together. And he took it and he pressed up 3,000 copies on his own. That album comes out in 1970. It's called Eat Out More Often. It's raw, it's nasty, and it's Rudy. Some folks say that Willie Green was the baddest motherfucker the world ever seen. <laughs> but I want you to light your joint and take a real good shit and screw your wig on tight. And let me tell you about the little bad motherfucker called Dolomite. Moore introduces the world to a new character, a flashy nightclub owner and pimp named after a mineral used in cement. Dolomite. Said y'all can suck my dick, nuts and ass down to the motherfucking bone because I ain't never coming back to San Antonio. Rudy gets his inspiration for the character from guys he knows from his neighborhood. Here he is in a 1994 interview. Let me tell you, I got Dolomite from the beer joint and liquor store wise men. Now let me describe who the beer joint and liquor store wise men are. They're uh, gentlemen that sit out in front of the liquor stores and buy beer and wine and sit there and uh, drink it and shoot the breeze all day, you know, cracking this joke and this joke and this joke and playing the dozens on each other and so forth and so on. That's where I got Dolomite from, and I recorded it on a record. He took the records to the DJs and asked him to play the records in the record store. He drove around and sold his records out of the trunk of his car. No different than Easy e did later when they were trying to sell NWA's first 12-inch. Rudy would go down to a truck stop and play his album to the truckers. And they would be angry. Why can't I get this? Author and filmmaker Nelson George remembers seeing the cover of Eat Out More Often as a kid. The cover is, and all his covers were crazy, is him with uh, a knife and fork in his hand, looking down at a very buxom, scantily clad black woman lying on the sofa and going, eat out more often. And I didn't quite know what was going on, but I was like, something's going on. That, that, oh, wow. And, and so Rudy was also, you know, he could be educational, depending on what you saw. So he was really quite a star in the ghetto, literally. Rudy actually calls himself a ghetto expressionist. I am the world's first comedian to use the four-letter words, which I don't call dirty words. I call them ghetto expressions in a form of art. So when I say being the first to do that, I am the one that laid the groundwork for every young comedian out here today. With Dolomite, Rudy enters the world of toasts. The jail toast is a long rhyme that was kind of perfected by dudes in the, who were in, inside jail that told stories wild, exaggerated stories with larger-than-life characters, usually bad guys, involved in crazy schemes. He got his groove, these body rhyming tales that have been passed down through generations. <laughs> now, Dolomite was from San Antonio, a rambling, scambling, gambling little young motherfucker from the day he was born. Right on. <laughs> well, the day he was dropped from his mammy's ass, he slapped his pappy's face and said, from now on, cocksucker, I'm running this place. <laughs> Dolomite said, bitch, I had a job in Africa, kicking lines in the ass to stay in shape. Said, I got run out of South America for fucking steers. Said, I fucked the she-elephant till she broke down in tears. Mabel said, I don't care where you going and where you be at. Said, I'm laying to wrap this good, hot, juicy pussy all around your bad ass cheek. Dolomite said, bitch, it's best you not fuck with me. Said, I better run you down some of my pedigree. Rudy's longtime friend and colleague, Foster Corder. The Dolomite stories were for, you know, urban ghetto people. 
what Rocky Horror Picture Show was for white people and what it meant and what it represented, the cult factor, that's what Dolomite was for the African-American community. You know, everybody knew Dolomite. Journalist, author, and activist Kevin Powell. He literally took black culture, black language, the black vernacular of our community, and he popularized it in a way that really we really hadn't seen much before, not on that level, because it was just very raw. Oh, but Mabel fought it. That's when the fucking started. She made up pussy through the mojo, the popcorn, the turkey, and the grind. Left Dolomite's ass nine strokes behind. Damn near put his asshole out of socket. Rudy Ray Moore is of a working class or poor black America, if you will. He, you know, he spoke the language that the people spoke. He, he, the only difference is that he became famous using the language, but he wasn't doing anything that we didn't hear in the communities. To have those kinds of verbal skills is something that you grew up with, a lot of us grew up with. After decades in near obscurity, Rudy Ray Moore finally has a hit record. Eat Out More often lands on the Billboard Top 40 Soul Music Chart at number 36. Just eight slots behind the only other comedian on the Soul Charts, superstar Flip Wilson. Rudy Ray Moore has arrived. But Dolomite kept on kicking asses, fucking up in the fall, till finally his role was called. The had his fuel. Carried him down to the graveyard. Dolomite was dead, but his dick was still hard. The preacher said ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Said, I'm glad this little bad motherfucker called Dolomite is no longer here with us. more talking about how that album became a homegrown hit. The very first day I put this record out when I carried it to the record store and they stuck the needle to it and I said this word. Some folks say that Willie Green was the baddest Emmy of the world ever seen. The fella said give me that record. I don't want to hear no more. Carried it home and 30 minutes later I know we had sold 15 albums from the sale of one and on and on and on and after two days it was a smash hit. It was unlike anything that they had ever heard before. You know, we also have to remember that in 1970, when Eat Out More Often came out, that level of language and that explicitness, this is even two years before Deep Throat even came out. So this was prior to porno movies being shown in the theater. There was really nothing like this going on at the time. Because the album's so raunchy, Rudy's still considered an underground artist, unwelcome in the mainstream. Record producer, Foster Quarter. Rudy Ray Moore's records came out at night. You didn't hear Rudy Ray Moore records during the daytime. And that night, everybody had a Rudy Ray Moore record. It would be reeking through the neighborhood. And it just, people would, where'd you get that record at? Author and professor of Black popular culture at Duke University, Mark Anthony Neal. I think there's no question that for many Black audiences, consuming Rudy Ray Moore, there was some freedom associated with this, right? That we could be Black in Black spaces, in this case, is our living room. We could be as Black as we want to and not have to put on the uniform of integration and civility to be able to be out here in this integrated world with white folks, right? This is what Black folks could be when they weren't in the office, you know, sitting there trying to fit in. One of their album's tracks, The Signifying Monkey, becomes one of Rudy's most famous bits. It's about a monkey who plays the dozens on a bullying lion. <laughs> that your sister did the damn trick. She got down so low and sucked the earthworms did. He said he spotted your knees behind the tree, screwing a motherfucking feet. He said he saw your aunt sitting on the fence giving a goddamn zebra fresh. While Moore's comedy might sound dated to audiences today, comedian Dion Cole says it's his point of view that's timeless. 
Rudy Ray Moore's comedy holds up to this day. Like, it, it just does. Because it's his perspective. The way that he did it was iconic, you know. So, yeah, it's going to always hold up. It's never been done before, and it's never been done after. That's why it will forever hold up. Said, oh, Mr. Lon, there's a big bad motherfucker coming your way. <laughs> and when you meet, it's going to be a goddamn scene. And wherever you meet, some ass is bound to be. That he's somebody that you don't know, because he just broke a loose from Ringland Brothers' show. Said, <laughs> baby, he talked about your people in a hell of a way. He talked about your people till my hair turned gray. He said, your daddy's a freak and your mama's a whore. Said he spotted you running through the jungle, selling assholes from door to door. <laughs> releases seven more albums in the early 70s, including three in one year alone. Moore brings more Dolomite, Return of Dolomite, Superstar, and Elect President Dolomite, released the same year Nixon wins re-election in 1972. I'm running for president, so uh, uh, I'm going to take over. I'm going to take this country over. And when I get to Washington, I'm going to move on my first act. I'm going to get me 2,000 ragged painters to paint the White House black. There's no question Rudy's records are selling, but it's hard to know just how much. It's been hard to trace actual sales figures of Rudy's albums. I'm completely certain that Eat Out More Often's easily sold a million copies in the 70s, in the early 70s. I would easily believe that four or five million copies of all of his, his works have been sold. Always the hustler, Rudy gets his name out there any way he can. During the day, between going to the radio stations, he'd get 50 glass ashtrays for probably $10. You know, they'd be like 10 cents a piece or something like that. He'd go to a copy center or something, and he'd take a picture and have them reduce it to put 15, 20 small pictures on one sheet of colored paper. And we'd go back to the hotel and he would sit in the bed and with a pair of scissors and Elmer's glue. And he would glue pictures of his face on the bottom of these glass ashtrays. And we'd go to the nightclub at night and after he would perform, you know, we had the merch table. We made $500 a night off the ashtrays, man. It was amazing. As Rudy's cult celebrity status grows, his stage persona starts to take over his everyday life. One of Rudy's producers and close friends, Foster Carter, remembers the time they went to an all-you-can-eat buffet together. He would wear these overalls, right? Like farmer's overalls and stuff. He'd go up in a smorgasbord, right? So he's taking chicken legs, chicken wings, and overalls has like eight, nine, ten pockets on He's stuffing chicken in the, all of the pockets on these overalls. And then he come back to the table and sit down, and he's got big grease stains stuff all around with chicken in these overalls. And the waitress or the manager would come up to him and say, uh, I'm sorry, sir, this is not takeout. This is a smorgasbord, this, which means it's all that you can eat, but you can't, you know, take food out. And he says, well, ma'am, this is all I can eat. In the mid-70s, a new film movement starts taking off that's right up Moore's alley. Independent, low-budget B-movies featuring strong black leads, often fighting against the system. The movement produces films like Shaft, Superfly, and Foxy Brown. And it comes to be known as Blaxploitation. There was a few elements that were happening in the 1970s that particularly appealed to black audiences in America. I mean, one, we love, love, love martial arts films. We love kung fu films. We love Bruce Lee. It kind of represented us fighting symbolically against the system, against the quote-unquote man. Number two, people need to understand what racism does to any people in a racist system, their culture, their history. So we forever are thirsty as black people to see images of ourselves on the screen. Again, Apollo Theater's Dwight Jordan. These black exploitation films that came out back in the day, they were so important because not that we looked at ourselves as pimps, hoes, thieves, but 
those people did exist in the neighborhood. It wasn't a leave it to beaver moment where somebody's walking in in pearls and putting a roast on the table. We didn't have that growing up, but we did have them hoes, pimps, and thieves. But not everyone in the black community is a fan. Many are against the portrayal of black people as pimps, prostitutes, and drug dealers. The term black exploitation is coined by one of its harshest critics, head of the Los Angeles NAACP chapter, Junis Griffin. We cannot take an eco- merely an economic view of black exploitation. It is a moralistic view. We must do whatever we can to raise the level of consciousness of that consumer community out there that support these movies. We must let them know how they're being exploited. They're part of the most insidious manipulation of behavioral patterns of any ethnic group ever recorded in the history of the movie and the film industry. Despite the criticism, these little movies are making big money. And Rudy Ray Moore sees a golden opportunity. Again, Dolomite is my name, co-writer Larry Karaszewski. Black exploitation era was in full bloom, so there was a marketplace out there. Rudy could look out there and see that people like Fred Williamson and Jim Brown and people like that were able to make these bigger action kind of movies. If you actually you go back and look at film history and, and the chronology, Rudy kind of got in right before the door shut with black exploitation. In terms of, you know, Shaft, Superfly, The Mac, it was at the tail end of that period when Rudy started making movies. Ironically, Rudy despises the term black exploitation. I never did like the term black exploitation. I think it was so crude to us. Why? As a people, to be termed as exploiting ourselves and to use such crude phrase of black exploitation. Uh, they never called the godfather that Marlon Brando had the smash it on Italian exploitation. They never called the western pictures that Hollywood made for so many years Indian exploitation. So I call the pictures that we made in that period black exploitation. Rudy may not like the term black exploitation, but he loves the films. And he feels like his whole career, his whole life has been leading up to this moment in time. Girl, this motherfucker's got rhythm. <laughs> For so long, African-American entertainers was just not allowed a place at the table. And he sees a big Hollywood movie and it's just kind of like, wait a second, these people are laughing all around me, but this movie is not talking to me. It's not talking to my friends. It's not talking to the people I know back in my neighborhood. If I made a movie, I would put it in a way that my friends could dig. And the people that I know would see themselves up on the screen. It's like bingo. At the age of 48, Rudy takes $100,000 of his record earnings and bets it all on a risky new career move. He'll make the ultimate black exploitation movie and he'll do it his way. We wrote uh, the screenplay, we filmed it with the little money that I had made, put it together. In fact, about it, I shot Dolomite myself out of my own money. Oh, really? Right. Rudy's favorite line was, because these white people won't give a N-word a dime. They have to control everything, but they're just not going to make the black movies like they need to be made. And if I heard that once, I heard it a thousand fucking times. Rudy gets local playwright Jerry Jones to write the screenplay, hires actor Dervell Martin to make his directorial debut, enlists a group of friends and UCLA students to fill out the crew. And the star of the film? Who else? Rudy Ray Moore as the title character, Dolomite. actor and comedian, Pierre. He had the vision to say, hey, damn Hollywood, I'll do it my damn self. And he did it, man. At the end of the day, you have to give him credit. So he's the forefront of a lot of the Spike Lees, Robert Townsend, all the people, young directors who are, who made movies with a little bit of money and got their friends together. He was one of the catalysts that did that without Hollywood. The film centers around Morris Dolomite, a pimp fresh out of jail, on a mission to get revenge on those who got him wrongly convicted. It's a wild, crazy, over-the-top mix of street action, kung fu fighting, explicit sex, 
and of course, raunchy comedy. I'm waiting for Dolomite. For who? Dolomite, motherfucker, you. And tell him I want him out of here in 24 hours. And 23 of them are already gone. The filmmaking was, you know, far from good, inept, but that was part of the charm of them. The sound effects were often, you know, in the wrong spot. And there was a lot about those films that was whack, but they also were very much a product of this kind of sensibility. I've got an all-girl army that knows what to do. They'll box as hell and practice kung fu. I put my finger in the ground and turn the whole world around. You know, you're still the best man that I know in bed. Well, I think his, his character, Dolomite, became iconic because it was such a over-the-top, jive-ass situation. Sometimes we just want to eat popcorn and just laugh. And Dolomite said stuff that we'd want to say, you know, sometimes in movies and stuff, you know, that we didn't see on the big screen at the time. He was very, very proud of that character, very proud of getting that film made. He knew it was somewhat B-movie, but he embraced that and he took the whole low-budget idea of it as part of the feel. He wanted it. He wanted it to be that. You know, I remember him telling me that he couldn't have made it that way if he had planned to make it that way, but money constraints and time constraints and it turned out pretty much exactly as he had hoped it would turn out. Again, Rudy puts up his own money, renting out movie houses to test the film with his core audience. Rudy always said he knew that if he was ever going to get on the screen, he had to put himself on there. So he did. And the very first screenings of Dolomite that Rudy basically rented the theaters out for were in Indianapolis and Baltimore. The screenings are a hot ticket. He could prove that he had something marketable. So now he goes back to Los Angeles he ended up taking it to Dimension Pictures, who took it on and distributed it. The film made by amateurs on a shoestring budget breaks in $10 million at the box office. A huge success for an indie film in 1975. The Human Tornado! He made me do it! Bitch, are you for real? Never one to rest on his laurels, Rudy follows up Dolomite a year later with the human tornado. Again, Rudy finances, produces, and stars in it himself. This time, Dolomite is out to protect his friend Queen Bee, whose nightclub is threatened by the mob. Dolomite, I've been waiting for you so long. Baby, good things come to those who wait. The Human Tornado actually was Rudy's favorite film. Has some of the wildest scenes in it, like the sex that destroys the room and and really took the Dolomite legend to a, a greater level than we had seen in the Dolomite film. After The Human Tornado, Rudy lands roles in other films, but they're largely ignored by moviegoers. I'm the Godfather, and my name is Tucker. Everybody knows that I'm a bad mother. Then in 1979, Rudy writes and produces the film Disco Godfather, an attempt at expanding his audience with a PG-rated movie. Rudy always had an eye kind of on the marketplace. He always, he always, you know, wanted to kind of jump on trends. Foster Carter is hired as a still photographer on the movie. He remembers meeting Rudy for the first time at the Dunbar Hotel. It was totally ghetto gaudy. That feeling when you walk into somebody's house and they have money, and the first thing you see in the living room over this gold lame or whatever it is couch is a, a velvet painting, <laughs> you know? It's like they can have anything they want. And it was a lot of gay people, and that kind of freaked me a little bit at first, you know. Even though he's bold and brazen on stage and screen, Rudy always kept his personal life very private. But that doesn't mean he tried to hide his sexuality. I can say Rudy was not ashamed of being gay. He, we just didn't flaunt it because in the 80s, being, I mean, homosexual people, gay people, 
are having a hard time today. So imagine in 1983, 84, being the, the sissy or what they used to call people coming out of the nightclub at three o'clock in the morning in the hood somewhere in, you know, ghettos of America and with three, $5,000 in your pocket. You didn't want to be that guy. Again, Professor Mark Anthony Neal. Whether or not Rudy Ray Moore was gay or not, I don't think has as much as an impact on his legacy. Because I think in many ways, the art that he was doing, the comedy that he was doing in comparison to some of the forms of Black comedy that was popular at the time, was always already queer. If we think about the meaning of queer outside of its sexual connotations, it's something that's strange and unusual. The way that Rudy Ray Moore talked about sex and sexuality in the early 1970s was strange and unusual to the very respectable ways that Black folks talked about sex and sexuality, particularly in the face of the white gaze. With Disco on his last legs and Rudy toning down his material for a PG rating, Disco Godfather is a box office flop. And in an industry where you're only as good as your last project, it's a tough blow to his career. Here's Rudy's manager, Donald Randell. It took him out of the element of being this funny, crazy, wild guy, naked women and comedy overtones. It was more of a message movie, so to speak. So it took him out of who he was as a film star, and it didn't do nothing at the box office. And that killed his career. Nobody wouldn't invest in him anymore. I saw Rudy vulnerable in being lost. It's like, where's his friends and where are all these people? I remember seeing this guy that everybody loved being lost. You know, you're talking about a man trying to come back up, didn't have anything. Had a name, fame, with no money. It happens. With his film career at a dead end, Rudy has to do what he's always done best, start hustling. He goes back on the road. Again, Foster Quarter. We were doing nightclubs, you know, all over the country, all the time. But we'd get in a, a big pimpmobile Cadillac and hit the road. Pretty much anywhere there was a large urban population, he went there. In the 1980s, hip-hop culture explodes into the mainstream, and Rudy is introduced to a new generation. The rap group 2 Live Crew samples one of his records and gives him a shout-out. Here's the rapper, Too Short. Rudy Ray Moore is considered to be the godfather of rap because everything that rap epitomizes with the swag, the rhyming, the shit-talking, the image to back it all up. He did all that shit before it was called rap. As a young rapper, we were 1,000% mimicking the way he emphasized the curse words. You got comedians like Richard Pryor and Red Fox, and they're being very explicit. But when Rudy Ray Moore called you a motherfucker, he called you a motherfucker. Like, you know, like it was you, you motherfucker. Rudy is elevated to hero status in rap circles. He's sampled by other rappers and starts making appearances with artists like Dr. Dre, Big Daddy Kane, and Snoop Dogg. Rudy loved Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg loved Rudy. He was sort of an adopted son of Compton. All the guys from Compton loved him. They treated him with so much respect. Since 1984, Rudy's bits have been sampled over a hundred times. As gangster rap takes off in the 90s, Rudy finds that rappers are mimicking the style he created. Too Short is Dolomite. That's what it is. It's just a rap version of Dolomite the Pimp, Dolomite the Player, Dolomite the Hustle. I just took the character, evolved it into Too Short. It's the guy who walks in the room, and he never fucks up. All his moves he makes, whether he gets knocked down, he gets back up, and he wins twice as much as he was winning before. Like, this guy always gets the pussy. He always gets the prize. That recognition from those key early rappers probably bought Rudy another 10 or 15 years of nightclub bookings because he was getting respect publicly from guys who mattered. 
At the age of 73, Rudy speaks with Cleveland Scene magazine about his influence on hip-hop. Here's an actor reading Rudy's words. The young people come to see me in droves because I have appeared with Dr. Dre, with Snoop Doggy Dogg on his latest album, Buster Rhymes on the album before the one he has now, Big Daddy Kane on an album, and Easy e I have appeared with all of these rappers, and the godfather of rap is what they call me. This is how I have picked up a new young audience. Comedian David Arnold says, Rudy Ray Moore is often called the godfather of rap for a good reason. He was the first person to put those two genres together, rapping and rhyming along with comedy. Nobody had done that before. I don't know that anybody has done that since. Not successfully. He would tell stories and they would just not be stories. He would rap and tell stories and they would rhyme and then people would repeat. Imitation might be the sincerest form of flattery, but for Rudy, it's complicated. At the very end, he was very bitter and felt like people stole his style, his look, and a lot of things that what he did back in the day to set it up for them. In his later years, Rudy laments not reaching the same heights as other Black comedians like Richard Pryor and Red Fox. He carried that resentment around continuously. He just was really pissed off that other people took off and made the made the big bowl of cash, and Rudy never really did. Manager Donald Randell says Rudy made a number of bad deals, like allowing rappers to sample his records royalty-free. I didn't know any better, and Rudy didn't know any better. And Rudy being cheap, he did have a lawyer, but he didn't want his lawyers involved because they would have had to get paid. On October 19, 2008, at the age of 81, Rudy Ray Moore passes away from diabetes. Rudy Ray Moore is a perfect example of that phrase that we've all heard so many times before. Is the day that you discover what you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life again. He loved being Rudy Ray Moore. He loved being Dolomite. He loved making people laugh. He was at peace. He loved what he did. It's showtime, y'all. You love him and I love him. Put your hands together. Dolomite is my name! After a lifetime of hustling and building a boundary-breaking career, Rudy's greatest tribute comes just over a decade after his passing. The Netflix film Dolomite is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy as Rudy. What'd you do to your hair? You look like a pimp. It's all pretend. I just created a character. Dolomite. You <laughs> true. Pull on that. Oh, that's a weed. Eddie loved the movie Ed Wood, so he sought out to find the movie's two screenwriters because he loved the writing on the film. Ed Wood was the story of another unique entertainer who followed his own rules. They started developing the project in 2003 and met Rudy five years before his death. There was one point where Eddie and Rudy, one, it's like one of them was in, it's like Eddie was in the room and Rudy was on the speakerphone and they started doing snaps at each other which was just fucking crazy. And we were just looking at each other like, oh my God, we are witnessing this. We are just flies on the wall witnessing magic. Whatever it takes, I'm ready to do it. I got to be totally outrageous. It's a good movie because Rudy's story is good. It's just like the Rocky story. Rocky was the guy that had nothing, that came from nothing to overcome the monster. Rudy Ray Moore did the same thing. He was David and Goliath. You know, he picked up that one motherfucking rock <laughs> and slung the shit out of it. Comedian and actor Lunell says the fact that Eddie Murphy played Rudy in a big movie is the validation Rudy had been seeking his whole life. I believe Rudy can now truly rest in peace because he has been acknowledged. He is in the homes of people who didn't even know who he was. It was an inspirational story about a guy who was struggling to be somebody and leave a mark on this world. And at the end of the day, he has done that. Rudy Ray Moore, in my opinion, somebody who took a chance, 
love what he did and I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be funny and I'm going to dress and say what I want. I'm my own man. That I'm going to entertain no matter what. He absolutely represents the self-empowerment ethos of Black America right out from the beginning. And so when you look at people like Rudy Ray Moore, people may be offended by this, but there's a direct correlation between him and Black folks creating their own schools, creating their own churches, creating their own businesses, creating a Black Wall Street. Booker T. Washington for Tuskegee Institute, we can go on down the line. Because the reality is because of racism, systemic racism in our society, which still exists to this day in our society, As a black person, either you figure it out for yourself how to navigate this, which means you have to create your own opportunities, or you may actually drown out here. That is what Rudy Ray Moore did. If I got a penny, every time somebody used to say, I used to sneak and listen to your records, or I used to sneak and watch your movie. If I got a penny, every time somebody said it to Rudy and I, I'll be a billionaire. That's how much love he had from people. Rudy Ray Moore's legacy is the independent spirit of filmmaking and just being larger than life, you know, just kind of do it yourself, man. He did it himself, and it's legendary, man. Like, his name is a household name, shit. Rudy Ray Moore, Dolomite, you know this fucking name. When I think about Rudy Ray Moore, I think about the ability to be daring, to be different, to have your own lane to have your own lane to move forward on your journey. Because when success doesn't come to you, sometimes you got to get in that vehicle and drive to success. I was blessed to be able to work with Mr. Rudy Ray Moore Dolomite in, in, in his later years. It was a privilege to work with him and be in his presence. Oh, man. You know, we continue to be inspired by legends who paved the way Thank you, Rudy Ray Moore. Brothers and sisters, I appreciate you so much for coming out on my opening night. From the bottom of my heart, I'd like to speak in behalf of Lady Reed and myself. We want to thank you for letting us be ourselves. Thank you.